Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Church family, we are in week two of our winter teaching series that we've entitled Belong, Believe, Become through the Gospel of John. Last week we went through John chapter 1. And we briefly introduced each of those three values, belong, believe, become. Today we're going to jump over chapter two and we're going to really dig into chapter three. John chapter three, if you want to turn there. I should let you know that I didn't mention last week because all the ice on the roads and it was just kind of a different Sunday, but we've got an outline for our winter teaching series. It's all 10 weeks, you've got all the dates, all the titles, all the scriptures, and then there's discussion questions that you can go through personally, you can go through with a friend. We've also fleshed this out into a multi-page document for your life group leader. So if you're in a life group, you can chat with your leader about whether or not you're gonna be discussing through this winter teaching series that we're doing through the Gospel of John, just to help take it further. If you want a copy, there are blue copies and white copies at the credenza in the lobby today. Uh, if you want to snag one of those, take the conversation further, dig a little deeper. But this winter, as a church family, we want to rally around this conversation through the Gospel of John, that everyone needs a place to belong, a truth to believe, and the courage to become. Today we're talking about belonging, acceptance, and approval. This is an area that I've really been trying to figure out through my lifetime growing up, and it's an area that I struggle with. So I'm going to try my best not to turn this into a personal therapy session. But just for fun, let's go back to middle school. That was a good time, wasn't it? Just picture middle school. Those awkward years. You remember trying to fit in in middle school? It was like high school musical in real life and everybody had their own table they belonged at except you, it seemed like. You don't want to get picked last for the team at recess. So you show off, you try and gain approval. You exaggerate the story to try and find acceptance. Then you get stuck trying to make all the lies match up. You jump from the highest height to impress the girl who doesn't even know your name. Turns out she wasn't looking when you made the jump. <laughs> Remember those days? Where you thought that belonging meant earning your place on the team. Impressing people to get their attention. The group. Your seat at the table. Last week we talked briefly about how people go to crazy lengths to try and find acceptance. And middle school is kind of an open book about going to crazy lengths to find acceptance. I figured out I could make my friends laugh. So I would tell outlandish stories and I would talk about topics and use language that I would never want my parents to hear because their laughter felt like acceptance. I remember being a tall and lanky kid even taller and, and more lanky than I am now in middle school. And I, I remember practicing in the driveway, shooting hoops, and realizing that if I scored the basket for my team at recess at middle school, that there was kind of this acceptance there and approval and people wanted me on their team. So I'm just going to put all my effort into that. 
I figured out that this girl named Megan played trumpet on the band, and I had no idea how to play trumpet. I'm not musically inclined, but I faked my way into playing trumpet so I could sit in the front row next to Megan. Until I realized that Jolene played snare drum in the band at the back of the room, so I switched to bass drum so that I could stand next to her. No, I couldn't, I can't, can't carry a tune. Did you see me clapping this morning? Does any of that sound familiar to your middle school experience? Faking your way into friendship? Trying to, trying to prove that you belong on the team? Trying to find acceptance in your performance? That's not true belonging. You know what it is? It's exhausting. You got to keep it up. You gotta keep faking, you gotta make the lies line up, and then eventually you think, who am I really? Where do I actually belong? School's done, and then it comes, where is community? Where do I find that? How do I find belonging? And all those stories that you exaggerated, all of a sudden people are mature enough to catch on that you're not telling the truth, and it's more of a turnoff than an invitation into their group. John chapter two. Jesus attends a wedding. In Cana, Jesus attended a wedding. Just think about that for a second. Is, isn't a wedding a picture of intimate community, belonging, relationship, where it's not fake friendship, it's a covenant for the rest of time. It's, it's true intimacy. And Jesus attended a wedding. Think about that. A wedding is a symbol, it's a picture of Christ and his church and the eternal bonds between the two. It's, it's Jesus redeeming his bride, being true to her for all of eternity. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus is sitting as one of the wedding guests. It would be like going to see Top Gun with Tom Cruise. And he leans over and nudges and he's like, hey, you do know this is all about me, right? <laughs> Jesus attended a wedding as part of the wedding party, a guest. At the wedding, Jesus turns water into wine, and this is the first of seven sign miracles through the Gospel of John that all point to the deity of Christ. That's the purpose of these miracles. And last week, we touched on the fact that belonging establishes identity, and Jesus was establishing who he was because of his relationship to the Father. And he was demonstrating that through these miracles. A big part of this series is to peel back the layers on who Jesus actually is, to reveal himself as God, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One. Following the wedding, the end of John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple, which seems like a crazy story in there, but he says of the temple, he calls it his father's house, claiming to be the Son of God. Then he talks about his resurrection, destroyed in three days, I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about the building, he was talking about his body, the resurrection. Only Jesus can raise from the dead because he is God. He's doing these signs to demonstrate that he's the real deal. He's not a fake and phony. He's not trying to perform or prove himself to win people's approval. He's the real deal. But not everybody was so sure. There were still people who doubted, who disbelieved, who had questions. Maybe you've heard the stories, but you still have yet to come and see for yourself to find out if it's really true. Was he trying to impress people? Was he a fake? Or was Jesus the real deal? 
That was Nicodemus' question. Turn to John chapter 3, and we'll start digging in in verse 1. Familiar passage. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Side note, do you know what his name means? I didn't. I had to look it up. Nikos and Demos. Nikos means victory. Nike, victory, Nikos. And Demos, which means tied. People together. People tied. People tied to victory. Nicodemus was stuck on trying to prove himself as victorious. Maybe this says something about his character. I don't know why his parents would have named him that. Maybe God had a background plan that we were going to dig into this morning. I know God has a background plan. I'm being facetious. But he's a Pharisee. He's a ruler. Maybe he felt the need to try and prove himself. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do you see how close Nicodemus is? Like he's just, he's right on the edge. He's heard about the miracles that Jesus has performed. He's heard about the signs that point to him being different. Maybe he's not just another eccentric. Maybe he's not just making big, bold, empty claims that he can't back up. I wonder if Jesus is the real deal. Jesus seems to back up his words with power and authority. Nicodemus just needs to find out more. The religious leaders are taking notice. Nicodemus had come to see and he says, teacher, we know that God must be with you because how can you do the things that you do? That term we know still keeps him kind of in control, right? I discovered this on my own. I'm just coming to see. We just don't know how. That can be a scary thing, can it? Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's the one who's supposed to know the answers. He's the one who's supposed to be able to go to the people and say, hey, you've been asking questions about this Jesus guy. Let me explain him. The problem with Jesus is Nicodemus can't explain how Jesus is doing what he's doing, how he's teaching as one with authority and power. There's something different about Jesus. He just can't put his finger on it or... Maybe he's not willing to admit it to himself or to the people that he was supposed to be leading. Notice how Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. I've heard so many people point this out. Why do you come to somebody at nighttime to have a conversation? Well, it's probably because you don't want people to know. It's probably because Nicodemus is a public figure as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, as a ruler of the Jews, and for people to watch him walk to where Jesus is, have a conversation, a little chit-chat, and then walk away, might raise a few eyebrows. So Nicodemus comes by night to talk to Jesus. Under the cover of darkness... I wonder if Nicodemus thought... Will people lose my respect if they know that I'm thinking about this Jesus character? Will I lose my standing as a ruler of the Jews? What about my religious colleagues? What about my pharisaical brothers? What will my coworkers think if I'm, if I'm talking to Jesus? What will my brothers think? Will they make fun of me? What will my family think? Will they disown me? Has anybody seen The Chosen? 
I really think it's interesting the way that they present this character, Nicodemus, because they, they speculate on his backstory and some of, these, some of these feelings that he may have been experiencing as he comes to Jesus by night. He's trying to figure this out, but he doesn't want to be open and honest to the general public about his concerns and questions about whether or not Jesus was the real deal. Look at where Jesus takes the conversation next. And this is classic Jesus. Look at this. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now leave it to Jesus to take the conversation in a totally unexpected direction, right? Do you think Nicodemus expected him to talk about that? Maybe you've thought, you know what, I've got this Jesus character figured out. I don't need to come and see for myself. I know Jesus is all about rules. He doesn't want me to have fun with my life. He just wants to preach at me and tell me all the things I'm doing wrong and condemn me. I've got this Jesus guy figured out. But if we actually came and see and talked to Jesus, I wonder if his answer would bend our expectations. I wonder if Jesus would surprise us. Nicodemus is asking about who Jesus is. Jesus responds with, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Is Jesus like playing a trick? Is he diverting the question because he's struggling for an answer? Or is he inviting Nicodemus to reason with him a little further? Come a little deeper, Nicodemus. Let's think about this just a little further. Look, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if, if you really want to know the answers to your heart's questions, then you need to be born again, reborn, made new. It's not just a fresh start. It's to be made a new creation. Jesus is basically saying, if you want to know me, you need to understand you. Jesus is a master of flipping the conversation back on the person who's asking the tough questions. If you want to see me, then you need to be reborn. You want to talk about me, but first we need to address where you're at and what need, needs to change in your life. Understanding who Jesus is, is the lens through which we understand who we are. Belonging brings identity. To see the holiness of God is to see our sinful state. To behold our Savior is to admit our need for salvation. Here's the thing, and maybe you've discovered this already. Getting to know Jesus is more about facts and figures and reading the words of his bio. Getting to know Jesus actually causes a change in us. You can't meet Jesus and behold who he truly is as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One, our Savior, and leave the same. It just doesn't work. Read all of the gospel accounts of people who ran into Jesus. They either left healed, forgiven, forever made new, or they left angry and distraught and frustrated, but they certainly did not leave the same. You cannot meet Jesus and not be changed. He's going to change you. He's going to challenge you. He's going to invite you deeper. Look at verse 4. 
Oh, Nicodemus, he says to him, how? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Do you think Nicodemus is being a little sarcastic at this point? Like, I know this isn't how it works, but Jesus followed the line of reason here. This doesn't make sense. How can a man be born again? Of course, Nicodemus thinks about the physical birth of a baby, right? Jesus says, born again. Nicodemus says, how? Physical birth. None of us is here today without having experienced physical birth. Each one of us was born. We were born to a family. Birth gives life. It gives identity. It gives belonging. It gives family. It gives relationships. In many ways, we receive our identity from our parents, from our family. The moment that we're born, what's their name? And the parent answers. Who do they look like? And hopefully the parent can clarify. They look like their dad. They look like their mom. Maybe the milkman. And then as you grow up, Parts of your parents' nature become evident in you, like I see myself in my son. It's the scariest thing in the world. But it's not just your nature, it's the way that you were nurtured. It's the way that your parents raised you takes on parts of your identity. And then you get to a point in life where people tell you multiple times a day, you sound like your father. With that mustache, you look just like your uncle. When you cross your legs like that, you sit just like your grandfather. Or, yep, he's a Fillmore. Anybody say that to you? Not, not the Fillmore part, but like, you know, that you take after your parents. Because a lot of our identity is found in who we belong to. Physical birth establishes so much of our identity. I get Nicodemus' confusion. How can a man be born when he was old? It's not like you can just start over. You can't go back in time. It's not like you can change your family identity, your nature, the way that you were raised, the way that you were nurtured, all the work that you've done to get to where you are at in life. You can't just go back and change that all, right? You can't start new. You can't start over. You know those time travel movies where they travel back in history, but they have to be so careful because if they adjust any little thing, then it could throw off the course of the rest of time, right? Like Marty McFly goes back and he's got to get his parents to fall back in love or he'll cease to exist and his body starts, and the DeLorean, right? Dr. Brown, was that his name? Time, time travel's not a real thing, just so you know. And that's Nicodemus' point. Like, how does this happen? I can't just travel back and start over. Elon Musk hasn't invented it yet. How can you reset your identity? Look at verse 5, John chapter 3. Jesus answered, truly, truly. He keeps saying that truly, truly part. It's almost like he's the one who has the truth to speak. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus differentiates. There's two different births. We're not talking about physical birth. Everybody's experienced physical birth. We're talking about spiritual birth. Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually, we need to be reborn. We need to be made alive spiritually. We're talking about spiritual 
birth. When Jesus says you must be born again, it's a metaphor for coming spiritually alive. So what of spiritual rebirth? Why do we need to be born again? Let's follow the conversation. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how? Probably a question that he'd been asked so many times. How can these things be? I wonder if part of the paradox for Nicodemus is not just the term born again and what it means, but that so much of his experience with God to this point was not based in spiritual, it was based in physical. His performance, his resume, his accolades, his education, the honor, the respect, the position, the titles, so much of his approach to God was based in all of his human accomplishments. That was his approach to God, earning his place, buying God's acceptance, climbing the religious ladder. This guy was tied to his victory, like his name suggests. But Jesus is saying something so basic and so elementary that it's just rocking this guy to his core. None of your attempts matter, Nicodemus. None of your religious accolades or all of the letters behind your name or all of the titles that you're given when you walk through the marketplace, none of that matters in your relationship with God. It's about being born again spiritually. Now let me ask you a question, just so maybe you can feel maybe what Nicodemus felt. What role did you play in your own physical birth? Did you push? Did you... Did you, you were there the entire time, yeah. Did, did you do the breathing exercises? Did you guide your own head on the way out? Did you announce your weight, your height, your gender? What did you accomplish in your own physical birth? Probably not much, right? You know why? Because you're an infant. Infants can't do a whole lot. Newborn babies can cry and dirty their diapers and... I mean, what more can they do? You're not capable of much. You can't hold your position because you can't even hold your head up. And Jesus says, all of your religious experience and where you've arrived in your life in your own physical strength, you need to become like a newborn baby that can't accomplish anything for itself. You need to be spiritually born again. Parenting is not about performance. Behavior modification to try and find their approval. Nicodemus had been chasing acceptance through religious rules and performance, but babies at birth, they have no way of performing for somebody's acceptance. Behaving for belonging. Last week, Jesus' baptism, he comes out of the water, water, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the voice of God the Father, you know what he says? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Approval, acceptance, belonging, a place. Can I ask you, what had Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry to that point? How many people had he healed? How many people were walking and talking and received their sight and their withered hands were healed because Jesus had healed them at that point? Is it zero? How how many sermons on the mount had he given? 
How many times had he died on the cross for our sins? How many, how many times had he walked on water or multiplied the bread? How many times had he done those things at that point at his baptism? His earthly ministry hadn't started. See, when Jesus opened the windows of heaven and called down at his son's baptism and said, I approve of you, my son, it wasn't because Jesus had earned it based on his performance at that point in his earthly life. It was because he was God's son. And God's approval was upon him because he was God's son. Not because he had proved himself at that point before his earthly ministry. Nicodemus, your religious performance means nothing. You need to become like a newborn. You need to start over. And Nicodemus responds with how? All this work, all these years, now you're telling me I need to go back to the start like a baby. Don't you know I went to Sunday school? Don't you know I spent so many hours sitting in that church building, listening to that pastor go on and on and on? I didn't get to be crazy on Friday nights, maybe a little wild in college, but then I turned it around when I got married. Now I'm a family man. I donate to charity. I'm a good employee. You're telling me none of that gets me anywhere? No privileges. Jesus seems to have some fun with Nicodemus. Look at this next part, verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly. I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen. You do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things, physical things, physical birth, and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things, spiritual things? There's a reason why you don't understand this spiritual rebirth, because you don't believe. You're trying to rationalize it in your own physical performance and experience and education and accolades. That's not how it works. Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus says, how do you not yet believe? Aren't you the teacher? Shouldn't you understand? And yet you don't know. Position and performance does not equal acceptance or belonging with God. Just because Nicodemus was a leader with all the education, the experience did not mean that he was forgiven, freed, and accepted by God the Father through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. You probably know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever, the King James Version says, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Four times John uses that term believe in these few verses. You cannot separate belonging from believing. They're interconnected. Here's the truth. God knew that you could never attain his standard of holy perfection. Based on your performance or based on your position. Because of the sin in our hearts, our natural propensity to rebel against God and go our own way like sheep, there was no way that we could earn his acceptance. So, 
God in his love provided another way, the only way, Jesus Christ. God gave you a gift. At Christmas, it's tradition to give gifts, right? And as much as Santa would want to brainwash you that you might get coal in your stocking if your performance isn't up to par this year, that kind of goes against the definition of a gift. Because a gift isn't something that you earn, not necessarily something you deserve. It's not something that you perform at a certain level to try and attain. A gift is grace. It's freely given. God gave you a gift, the gift of his son, Jesus, so that we could be saved through his performance, not ours. His position, not ours. His perfection, not ours. His sacrifice in place of ours. Jesus did it for us because none of us can do it for ourselves. You see, we will never find belonging in our attempts to achieve it to earn it, to strong arm it, to impress. The only way to find true belonging in a relationship with God the Father is through his son, Jesus Christ, through faith and trust in his sacrifice in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Hold on a minute. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Do you think as Jesus is saying this, he's kind of gesturing like people love the darkness because they don't want people to see the uh, hypocrisy in their heart, Nicodemus. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Their motives were evil. Look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Isn't that Nicodemus' greatest fear? To be exposed Somebody who didn't know all the answers. Somebody who had questions about Jesus. Somebody who had wondered more at life's biggest questions. Verse 21. Whoever does what is true and comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. The light exposes the dark. Now our first thought is criminal activity in some alleyway after midnight, right? But what Jesus is really talking about is the hidden places in our heart. The sin that's in our heart that we think man who looks on the outward appearance can't see, but God who looks on the heart can see. And Jesus is the light whose truth exposes the lie of hypocrisy in our hearts. Nicodemus is torn open. And this little boy screaming for acceptance in his heart is exposed. All the times he's tried to perform to gain people's acceptance. And Jesus has cut right through that. We were talking about this very thing in our guys group last week. Eldridge was talking about Adam. After he and Eve ate the fruit, they hid themselves. God comes in the garden. Where are you, Adam? And Adam steps out to reveal himself to God, except he doesn't really reveal himself, does he? He keeps the parts hidden with fig leaves that he doesn't want to show God. The one who created him, the one who designed him, the one who formed him out of the dust of the earth and breathed life in his nostrils. He's going to hide himself. The parts that he doesn't think are presentable, and he's going to present his best parts. He's going to perform for God to try and win his acceptance and approval. We know how that worked. Jesus says to Nicodemus, I'm the light. I expose the hidden places of the heart. 
It's about receiving God's free gift, being born again. Maybe that's you. Maybe for years you put on your Sunday best and you put on that smile. You come in and, yeah, I'm doing good. To gain acceptance, you try and play a part. Maybe you've become so used to faking it that you don't really remember what it's like to truly belong to anything. You're just trying to keep up a show. To have people accept the real you is scary, not the fake you, not the part that you want to present. But that's not real community. I, I remember growing up, I performed to gain the approval of my classmates, and I had this nasty habit of stretching stories so far that they seemed unbelievable. But wow, were my friends impressed if I convinced them enough. So I had this one story that I told my friends that this guy hit me on his bicycle and I didn't even flinch. I think I was in grade five. The real story was I ran into a parked minivan on my bicycle, but I didn't want them to know that because that was embarrassing. But then my friends said, prove it. Uh-oh, <laughs> I've been exposed. What am I going to do now? If I come out with the truth, then my friends may not want to be my friends and I'm going to lose all this impressive story that seems too good to be true. All right, get your bike. And I stood in the middle of the road that day. And my friend Michael, who was a little wiry guy, thank goodness, got on his bike and he got up to speed and I let him run into me to try and prove a fake story to gain the acceptance of my friends. And we were all laying on the ground moaning that afternoon. And, <laughs> I don't know what the point was I was trying to prove, but it hurt. <laughs> if you need to live a lie to secure a sense of belonging, it's not real belonging. We weren't being good friends to each other that day. And, Nicodemus wasn't winning God's approval with all of his performance. He was just hurting himself and the people around him. Adam was trying to hide himself before God who created him. The prophet Nathan, King David's friend, confronts him and says, you are the man, and David's exposed before his friend for who he truly is. Judas is sitting there in the upper room all smug like he faked everyone out. I've even got the money bag right here. These people are crazy enough to trust me with it. Jesus says, here's my betrayer. And Judas runs out exposed, discovered. Is there this lie in your heart that says, if people knew who I truly am, if they only knew the real me, then everyone would run and I'd be alone. If my spouse only knew my real struggles, they'd leave. If my kids knew how I messed up, I'd lose their respect. If my parents knew, they'd disown me. If my church knew, if my life group leader knew why I couldn't make it to group, if my pastor knew why, if my boss knew why I was late that morning, if God knew the real me. But let's stop right there. God does know the real you. And he loves you. I was reading Psalm 18 the other day. David says, you delight in me. Not the fake me that tries to impress and win your affection. You delight in the real me. Because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God sees the dark hidden places of our heart. You love me, the real me, so much so that you were willing to give your own son for me. Because God knew that I would never be able to reach the standard of his perfection. 
So he met the standard for me. There's no more earning, no more competing, no more faking, no more trying to earn somebody's approval. He offers it freely. I think that's a good thought to end on. I'm going to call some members from the band up at this point, and if you were braving the weather last week and you were here in person or you participated online, you will know that we tried out something relatively new. And I threw out that loaded term, guided meditation. And I said, maybe you think of Eastern mysticism or yoga or something you've seen on TV or maybe an app like Calm that's meant to, to calm your mind in the quiet moments where you're doing your vocal exercises. But actually, meditation has deep roots in scripture. And we said that through this series, we want to have a purposeful prayer time on the content of the scriptures that we just dug through to end the service. So that's my hope here and now. We're going to have the scriptures on screen that I just spoke through, and we're going to have some focused, guided, guided time of thoughtfulness and prayer on those scriptures. Does that make sense? All right, I would encourage you to stand at this point as we close the service in this time of prayer and meditation. I just want you to think about this with me. Thank you, Jesus. You are my life, my new life. Thank you, Jesus, that even I can be made new. Would you forgive me, God, for trying to earn your respect? Forgive me, God, for relying on my own performance. Please, God, would you show me what it is to be born again? Thank you, Jesus, for my physical life. Can you say that with me? Thank you, Jesus, for my physical life. Let's say it again for our spiritual life. Thank you, Jesus, for my spiritual life life. I'm sorry, God, for thinking that I had it figured out. I'm sorry, God, for all the ways that I've pretended. Please, Jesus, build faith in me. Please, Jesus, help me trust your truth. Thank you, God, for giving your son. Can you repeat that with me? We thank you, God, for giving your son. Thank you, God, for accepting my faith in him alone. Forgive me, Jesus, for thinking you would only accept my best and that you would condemn 
my worst parts. Please, Jesus, expose me for what I am. A sinner saved by grace. God, would you cleanse our hearts today? Purify our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Try me, Lord. Know my thoughts. God, thank you that you accept the real me, not the version that I present to everybody else. People, maybe I'm trying to impress, but God, you accept the real me as I am because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you love me so much you would give your son to die on the cross in my place. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. Thank you for the new life that you freely offer. God, thank you that we get to belong to you as your child, forgiven, freed, redeemed, made new, on a new path with a new trajectory, a new heavenly father, a friend who sticks closer than any brother, the Holy Spirit to guide us. God, we thank you for these privileges, not because we earned them, not because we deserve them, but because it's a gift of grace. 